Well, we're in this series, Journeys to God Knows Where, from three or four primary books. So it's a topical study, but we're staying in a handful of the same books uh, every week. And this is the next in that group of messages. How many of you, now this is mostly going to be boomers. Jeff, are you a boomer? You're right on the border of Boomer. I'm right at the heart of... How many of you grew up with your favorite babysitter or child caregiver, Popeye? How many of you grew up with Popeye? We're going to have a Popeye test. So this is like Boomer's day to shine because I think Popeye was done uh, by the time you guys were growing up with cartoons. But Talk about how this culture is raised not by their parents. This generation is raised not by their parents, but by the movies they see and the hip-hop artists. Fact is, it wasn't that much different when I was growing up. It's just that we were really raised, found our values by the cartoons we watched, and Popeye was the star of that. Okay, just shout this stuff out. Who remembers, uh, let's see, that there's a picture of Popeye. Do we have that come on up? Go ahead. They should be in there, in the slides. Go to the next slide. Well, blow me down. We don't have pictures of... What's next? Oh, that's last, that's last week's slides. I mean, two weeks ago. Yes, rescue us, Daryl. Let's just hope I didn't send them the wrong ones. Let's, but listen, who, who remembers uh, who Popeye was in love with? Olive oil. Olive oil. Can anybody spell it correctly? Oil is O-Y-L-E. Do you remember that there was someone who would always pay, gladly pay Popeye Tuesday for a hamburger today? Who was that? Wimpy. Do you remember the name of the little child that nobody ever dressed? He always was crawling around, or he or she, whatever, on Sweet Pea. Do you remember how to spell that? Not Sweet Pea. Sweet, and then a capital P, and then a P-E-A. We learned a lot of good things from Popeye in that series. For instance, we learned that you should always eat your spinach, right? In fact, finish this for me. I'm strong to the finish because I eat my spinach. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Toot, toot. <laughs> Boomers are rocking it today. Spinach sales, in fact, were falling like crazy. And when that Popeye cartoon came out with that emphasis on spinach. Because remember, he could suck the spinach in through his pipe. He could just open the can and down it raw, go lift up a house, go, you know, put a bridge back in place by himself. Popeye was so strong. Spinach sales skyrocketed. There we go. There's Popeye. And there's olive oil. There's Wimpy. Good. Stop. There's Sweet Pea. Stop right there. We learned some great Lessons, you should always eat your spinach. We also learned that sailors have terrible grammar. Pardon me, sailors. At least Popeye did. Remember this one? I am what I am, and that's all what I am. That's Popeye version for saying, be real, man. I am what I am, that's all what I am. Remember this one? I, this is one that I use raising my children, and you may have as well. That's all I can stand, because I... Can't stand no more. There's a third, so, so always eat your spinach. We learned that sailors have terrible grammar, but they can still be good guys. There's a third and most important lesson. It's certainly the most important lesson for this message. 
We also learn from Popeye that no matter how much you try to do good, set yourself on a trajectory for good, there will always be someone who will oppose you. Does, now, I have a gift certificate here, an Amazon gift certificate for $50. To the, listen now, don't jump up. No Googling. For the first person who can, number one, don't come up yet, who can come up here and correctly answer this question. Popeye's nemesis had two names. Don't shout them out. What were both names and which order were, in which order were they introduced? One, two, three, go. First person up here. You have to come up here. You have to come up here. You have to come up here. Come on up. Oh, come on, Todd. Come on, Todd. Can we get this mic live here? This one, or is there a handheld? There we go. Come here, Todd. Do you know the answer to this? Come on. Come on, buddy. This is the benefit of sitting in the front row. You get to be the, watch your, there's a lot of stuff to trip over here, so be careful. Make your way over here to the mic. Over here, Todd. Okay, so Todd, Popeye's, the bad guy in Popeye's, the one who always, Popeye commercials, the one who opposed him, had two names. What were the two names that he was called by? Come on by the microphone. Do you know it? What was one of his names? No, not Art. No, what was... You got him? You have a name, a picture? Go ahead and put the picture of him up there. Maybe that guy right there. Remember any of his names? Yeah, Brutus. Brutus, that's one of the names. He was known by another name. Pluto. He got him. Brutus and Bluto. Now, do you remember which of those names was his first name? His first name was Bluto. Bluto! Todd, I'm proud to present to you a $50 gift certificate to Amazon. Be careful going down now. I got all these cords and everything. You knew he was going to nail it, right? No matter what trajectory toward good you're on, one of the things Popeye taught us because of that guy was that there's always going to be opposition. In other words, every Popeye and every Popeye experience has a Bluto. There's no such thing as a perfectly smooth trail on a journey to God knows where. There's no such thing as a path that doesn't have opportunities to trip and fall, especially when it's a path that leads to a noble end. It's a noble exposition. Every journey to God knows where will meet with resistance along the way. In other words, opposition is normal, especially when you're moving toward good. Now, we don't need Popeye to teach us that. The Bible's been teaching that, illustrating that, uh, ever since people have been opening its pages or unrolling its scrolls. In fact, you look in the Bible and you read about some of the great journeys to God knows where, the great noble expeditions people of Scripture have taken. And there is virtually no worthwhile journey in Scripture that doesn't encounter serious opposition. That's normal when you're moving toward good. For instance, Moses was opposed. And Moses was opposed by the very people he was trying to free. 
They were, he's opposed because those folks were scared. Sometimes the opposition we encounter on a journey to God knows where is a result of people experiencing fear. They've just known nothing but battering and misery. All they know how to do is duck every time there's a loud noise. And those folks tend to oppose anyone who's trying to move them in a better direction. Look at, Exodus, look at Exodus chapter 14, for instance. They're at the, they've, Moses has led the people from Egypt. Now they're at the Red Sea, ready to see it part. Now, mind you, they've seen all sorts of plagues and miracles going on. There can really be no question about the fact that God is with them, that this is a God-endorsed journey they're on. And, as, and then they go to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has a second thought, and he brings his army, and now he's pursuing them. Say, come on back here. I'm not losing all those slaves. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and then they said to Moses, "Is it be?" And the, cynic, the, the, the sarcasm, cynicism, and sarcasm—they're forever partners, and they're painful partners. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Then the great big I told you so that often comes with opposition. Is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone, leave us in our slavery, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Opposition on a journey to God knows where, when that journey to God knows where is a noble journey, it's a journey toward good and rightness. It will always, always have opposition to it. That's normal. At the first sign of trouble, what did the, do the, what did the recently freed Egyptians do? They complained to God, and then they really let Moses have it, the one who was leading them to freedom in the first place. Nehemiah was opposed. So Moses was opposed by the people he was trying to free. Nehemiah was opposed by the people who should have shared his belief in God with him. Nehemiah had received permission and funding from the emperor to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Understand, when you rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and this is what was in Nehemiah's mind, he was more not so interested in stone. When you rebuild the walls of a city in that day, you rebuild the city's financial or economic future. You rebuild the people's cultural future, historical future. You give hope. You make it possible for things to move forward because they're no longer as vulnerable to attack. They can start moving ahead. And Nehemiah goes to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were in piles. They'd been burned and knocked down. And the city's completely vulnerable, just right out there, Anybody who wants to lay waste can lay waste, but there was nothing worthy of stealing anymore. And he goes to rebuild those walls, and he is opposed. But he's opposed by people who actually shared his belief in God. And he was, he was opposed by them, not because they were scared. Well, it was a fear, but it was a different kind of fear. He was opposed by them because they were threatened by his potential success. If you look at Nehemiah 4, we're introduced to a fellow named Sanballat and others, but Sanballat's the star in this story. Sanballat, history tells us, was a Samaritan, so he was at least part Jew. Sanballat, tra tradition tells us, actually started 
the Samaritan version of Jewish worship of Yahweh. Sanballat, tradition tells us, was behind the building of the temple in, uh, up north of Jerusalem. In fact, let's look at John. Uh, the slides are out of order if we do it this way, but let's look at John chapter 4 first, the next text, and, and then heads up. I want to come back to that when we just left. Can we do that? In John chapter 4, you have the woman at the well, and she refers to the temple. This is later on now after it happened. Now this is the time of Jesus. This happened uh, years and years before when they built the temple in Sambalot. He's long dead. But this is the, the woman at the well that Jesus encounters in John chapter 4. He comes to her, asks for water, has a great conversation with her, and get, tells her something about her life that only she knew. And she says in response to that, uh, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And then listen to this. Our ancestors, ancestors worshipped on this mountain, pointing to the temple that Sambalot built and referring to the worship of God that Sanballat had a part in initiating. But you Jews claim, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time's coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father. In the spirit and truth, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. So you see the, the parallels, the theological parallels in teaching between worship. They were teaching about a Messiah as well, as were the, the priests down at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus then says, coming, he's here. I am he. Now, if we could go back to the Nehemiah 4 text. Give a hand to the tech guys because I'm bouncing them all around in different directions than what I sent to them. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 4. We're back to Nehemiah's time. Nehemiah was opposed by people who should have shared in his belief, in fact, did share at some level in his belief about Yahweh. Yet, when Sanballat heard that Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall, he became angry. He was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. In the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then you have Tobiah the Ammonite offering, I guess, that day's version of trash talk Tobiah was at his side and said, what, are, what they're building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down the wall of stones. And how did Nehemiah respond to the opposition? The very next line. He hears all of that, all those threats, all that opposition in response to him doing a good and godly thing, because opposition's normal for any journey to God knows where. The next verse says, so we quit. So we slowed down, so we renegotiated, so we had a committee meeting. No, it doesn't say that. So we built the wall. Till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of their heart in the midst of all of that threat and opposition. Threat and opposition that was driven primarily by, by uh, insecurity. And when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people 
of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. That's one of the tactics that are used when you're moving in a good direction and then opposition comes. Sometimes it's direct. Somebody pulls out a sword and takes you on directly more often. It's they stir up trouble in the ranks. And most good ideas are crippled by resistance from within. They stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to this work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Yet the walls got built. Sanballat was threatened by Nehemiah's success, so he became Nehemiah's Bluto. For every Popeye, there's going to be a Bluto. Every journey to God knows where will meet with opposition, whether it's the result of fear or insecurity. Moses knew that, Nehemiah knew that, and of course Jesus knew that, because Jesus knew that, because Jesus was opposed by the very people he came to rescue by the very people he came to save. Why? Because they were blind. Or they misunderstood him. They were not able to see him for who he really was as their Messiah. Or they were not willing to see him for who he was as their Messiah. They, they were blinded. Look at John chapter 1. You have John being uh, Jesus being introduced in John chapter 1. But note, the words of rejection. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, and by the way, the Word is a reference to Jesus. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man uh, from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. That's John the baptizer that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, John. He came only to give witness to the light, Jesus. The true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world, and he was in the world, and, through the, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The world was blind. And he came to that which was his own, to his own chosen people. But his own did not receive him. Yet, and here's that good news we talked about earlier, to all who did receive him, to them who believed, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. That's the birth that you read about the, in John chapter 3. And the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. Even Jesus knows that opposition is normal when you're on a great and noble journey. His own disciples betrayed him. 
he received resistance even from his own closest friends. Matthew 26. Then one of the 12, this is right toward the end of Christ's ministry. It's a story of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. One of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asks, asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And there's all sorts of discussion about why Judas would do that. What was his motive? Some think, and I'm among them, that he was trying to force Christ's hand. He didn't quite like the way Jesus was doing things. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. He got paid early. And then jump down to verse 47. This is in the garden now. Further down the line of the story, while he was still speaking, Jesus, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss, he said, he's the man, arrest him. And going out once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus replied, and here I've merged a bit of Luke's account with Matthew's. Jesus replied, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? And then back to Matthew, do what you came for. Listen, look at that last word, friend. Guys, betrayed him, become his opposition after Jesus has poured three years of his life into Judas. Let Judas come to him and kiss him and then still refers to him as friend. Jesus was opposed by the very people he came to rescue. See, and, and if... Moses knew opposition in his journey toward God knows where. And if Nehemiah knew opposition as he was on his journey to do something good, and if even Jesus, God himself on earth, knew opposition, had to contend with opposition as he was moving toward something great and noble and fantastic, what makes us think we will not? On our journey to God knows where, when you are in your life trying to move toward what's right, you're going to encounter opposition. Trying to respond to what God is guiding you to do. You're going to encounter opposition. That's normal. As a church, when we're trying to get things done, like building a new building or reaching a new school or caring for missionaries in Indonesia or wherever it might be, whatever ministry we're trying to do, we are going to encounter opposition. Opposition is normal. John 15, 20 says, if that Jesus said, if they persecuted me, speaking to his followers, they're going to persecute you also. John 16, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, and you have had tribulation, but take courage. He didn't say, I'm going to remove all the tribulation. No, no, take courage, for I have overcome the world. It's going to come at you, and we're going to come right back at it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against this message of good. If you're going to embark on a journey to God knows where, get ready to deal with pushback, with hiccups and opposition along the way. That is just normal. So as I wrap this up, let's take a second to respond to that. How do we respond to this resistance? We basically have two options. Option number one, when we're on a journey to God knows where, and we encounter the opposition that, as a matter of fact, will come. One option we have is to quit. 
And that is to let the challenges trump the vision. We interpret the vision in light of the challenges. We reinterpret the vision and adjust it in light of the opposition. So the original vision gets reinterpreted in light of the forces that resist it. That's one of our options. There's a second option. Second option is to push through. In other words, to let the vision trump the opposition, let the vision trump the challenges. Resistance gets reinterpreted in light of the original vision. Resistance gets reinterpreted or interpreted in light of the vision. The vision speaks more loudly. And those are basically the two options we have. Quit or push through. Quit or push back and keep going. A couple of takeaway points that are just good principles to remember from this example. If opposition is a normal part of a journey to God knows where, then here are some things that you can write down and remember. First, the fact that things fail to go smoothly is not necessarily proof that we're missing God's will. It doesn't mean that God's not in it. Some people assume, some Christians assume, boy, if we're following God and we're doing what God's asking us to do, he's going to go like a lead blocker and just clear the way. Going to have a huge hole to run through. Now, as a matter of fact, sometimes when you follow God, he quits blocking. As far as you can tell, it looks like he quits blocking. You have to take on some of those hits. Ladies and gentlemen who are not sports fans, pardon the football illustration. The rest of you who are normal Americans, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> But listen this, the fact that things are tough is not proof that you're outside of the will of God. Please write that down. Second takeaway. Actually, since God has never ordered anyone to go on a journey that didn't involve significant pushback, it's not the fact of opposition, but perhaps the lack of it that should cause concern. Correction now, one thing to take away is a big corrective. Caution. Sometimes resistance is simply wisdom speaking. Illustration that one of my friends gave me the other day. Friends opposing you driving and taking away your keys when you've had too much to drink, that's not the kind of opposition I'm talking about. Because that's not you embarking on a journey to God knows where that's good. Sometimes opposition is simply wisdom. So understand what we're talking about. That's not the kind of opposition you need to push through. Or that's the kind of opposition you need to yield to. But normally, when you're moving toward good, the fact of opposition, not the fact, the fact of opposition, it's the lack of opposition that should be the cause for concern. Third and final takeaway. Be careful not to miss the journeys within the journey. When things come against us, when we're moving toward good, and there are bumps in the road, things that are difficult to face. Our heart gets broken, and all we were looking for was a good, pure relationship. We applied to the college we had dreamt of going to all of our lives, and the door got closed, and we don't know why. Well, what do I do now? Uh, a, a relationship ends, a job, whatever it might be. Don't miss the journeys within the journey. If God causes all things to work together for good, he really means all things. Every 
experience with opposition as we're moving toward what's good is an opportunity to learn to have our souls crafted, to have our faith strengthened, strengthened, to see where we really are, how we're doing. God wants to use all of those things. So while we're on the big journey, don't miss the journeys within the journey. Everything is an instrument in the hands of God. Opposition is normal. I shared with you some years ago, I think, that when I was in high school, I was on the cross-country team. And I was the number one runner on the junior varsity cross-country team as a sophomore, believe it or not. And I was in my first cross-country race ever. Three high schools came to San Jose to compete against Midi. I think Reardon and St. Ignatius. We're all down there in Midi, and the three of us. You have all those cross-country runners, and the gun goes off, and you run toward a funnel of cones, and it sort of forces you into line. It was about a three-and-a-half-mile course, and I had never raced cross-country before. It only worked out. And lo and behold... I was in first place and we turned the corner for the final stretch and it was a really quick pace, but I wasn't having any trouble with the quick pace because I'd been running with the varsity guys at practice. We turned the corner, I think, for goodness sake, man, I'm not just going to finish this thing. I might win it. I might even, or I might place at least. That's cool. And so I'm running and I'm thinking, I'm just going to, I see the finish line now and I see Steve Barada, who was my varsity trainer, the number one running in the school. He sees that I'm leading. He starts calling out my Greco. Hey, Greco, go. <laughs> and I had passed everybody, and then I hear these footsteps in my Bluto. Decided that he wanted first place. And he was going to sprint after that fast pace to the finish line. Steve Barada. And Steve Barada comes up on me and says something like, See you, Greg, or something like that. And I said, You know. So I started sprinting too, all I had in me, all I had in me. And what started going through my head on that day was, man, this kind of hurts. <laughs> man, this, look, second place is cool. All the rest of those guys aren't going to get second place. And I was just about to quit. But just before I quit, Barada quit. And I came across the line and took the first ticket. And my coach, partner, runner, grabbed me and picked me up. And as soon as I quit running, everything just, because it was such a sprint. I think I've told you that story before. I don't know that I've told you the rest of the story, though. Because the next week, we had a meet here in San Francisco at the Polo Grounds. And everybody's, oh, Greg, you're going to win this, and Greg, you're going to do that. And, and we started that race, and about halfway through it, my stomach started to hurt a bit hillier at the polo grounds and the, and the park over here than it was where we were running the week before. And that week, the very week after I experienced that kind of the elation of winning, halfway through it, I decided, this hurts too much. I don't want to run anymore. And so I faked a knee injury and quit. Honest. It was a prophetic fake because now I actually do have a bad knee. But <laughs> here's what I was thinking about this week. You know, one hour after each of those races, I felt the same. I felt normal an hour after the first race. 
where I hadn't quit and brought a had. And I felt pretty normal after the second race where I quit and nobody else had. Felt the same. But guess which one felt better that night when I went to bed? When I laid down on my pillow and I thought, if I wouldn't have quit today, I'd still feel as good as I feel now. Winning felt a lot better. Here's my question for you. Is that a picture of what's going on with your journey to God knows where? Is there a Bluto, a Brutus, coming up on your shoulder and whispering things that take the wind right out of your sail? God has never ordained something for someone that hasn't been severely tested and opposed. There is a Bluto for every Popeye. Might it be that if you hold out for just a few more steps, the opposition will falter and fall. There's no such thing as a noble expedition with a perfectly smooth trail. Does not exist. Every journey to God knows where will meet with resistance at some point. Opposition is normal, especially on a journey toward something good. I want to leave you with this question. The question is not, will you experience opposition? The question is not, will we as a church experience opposition? The question for the day is this. On our journey to God knows where, will we be able to outlast the opposition? Because, listen, take this away with you today. <laughs> he or she who quits last wins. Let's pray. Oh God, will you take these great examples we're not really worthy to be compared to a Moses or a Nehemiah and certainly not to Jesus. But take these great examples and brand them into our minds, especially for the one who's here today thinking, yeah, it's over. I pray for them a race they finish, not a polo grounds disaster that they quit and could have won. I pray for them the strength to endure. I pray for them the perspective that reminds them that great journeys are always opposed. That greater is he who is in us than the one who opposes us. I pray for the reminder that the one who quits last is the one who wins. And for the power to be that one. In the name of Christ, amen.